also you asked me what is design we were sitting on the steps in front of the ice cream parlor it was cool in the shade and a bit warm in the sun and i chose to answer that question in two ways i said you could go down a path which is analytical so what is design it's an attribute of objects and all objects have an attribute which let's say is design it's what you apprehend but the other way is where you go down a path where you say design is something that i see through my eyes here through my ears i touch it's tactile it's haptic it's sensory and it's experiential which means now everything is experiential and there is a domain of the experiential and how do you then interrogate in the experiential domain so it is not so analytical as let's say hypothetically if you were to construct a space that is propositional i want to hold something that is grippy or that's soft and you know so you sort of are entering into a space where you are creating something and so this is potentially one of the ways to answer that question now there could be other ways so let's see so welcome to learner center design education i've come back after almost a month and a half of silence i've been traveling post pandemic i posted from vancouver at the beach and then came back to melbourne for a couple of weeks and i posted from princess park where i'm back here today at princess park this is the long weekend and i finally got a bit of space in my head to say let me sit down and do another recording i've spent 5 weeks in india visiting family and also spending a week at a remote rural school uh, there'll be a short podcast series in english and in hindi coming up later on when i've collected my thoughts and i've sort of looked into my notes and things like that all right so today i'm essentially opening up a space where you ask what is design now if this were a zen koan then the answer to that would be who is asking so you say i'm a double degree student i'm sort of doing industrial design but i'm also doing engineering and you want an answer then which is something that fits in as a complement to let's say the engineering ways of looking at things 1985 i entered design school 
as a graduate mechanical engineer to do a postgrad in industrial design. I was in that space. I would analyze everything. Everything had to have meaning. Everything had to be something that could be pinned down and why, I would say, to everything. Why does it have to be like that? Prove it to me that there is some point. So there was al- it was always something that had to be functional, utilitarian. It, it, design had to be analyzed in the way uh, mechanical engineering thought, which is it's mechanical, there are forms of energy, you touch something and something happens, so there's, there's a particular way, a particular kind of way to construct the discourse, or to construct meaning. If you were to say, um, what is design? And in answer to the question, who is asking? You say, I'm a historian. I'm, I'm a biologist. I'm David Attenborough. I'm going to look at design in butterflies or design in moths that have survived by camouflaging themselves to be on uh, trees which were pol- where there was all this pollution that was falling on the trees and the trees were discolored. They became dark gray and patchy. And, and so the moths that were natural moths, which may have been brown colored, were easy to spot. And so they got eaten. But the ones which were freaks and had the strange coloration, which now accorded with the pollution on the trees, survived. So, so this is a particular way to talk about, let's say, the coloration of butterflies. Why are they colored the way they are? Why are flowers colored? Why is there color at all on the planet? It should be entirely gray. And we'd use, I don't know, night vision glasses to see things and shapes. So you choose the domain and you talk about design in a particular way. Or you can interrogate design in a particular way. Now, another way to answer who is asking is that, so I said, all right, so there's, let's say there's an engineering functionalist utilitarian way. It's something that we all know how to do. And for example, let's leave design aside and let's go into another space. So you say, okay. What is this? And so I show you a rose. And you go, oh, that's a rose. And I say, what is a rose? And then you go, a rose is a flower. And then I say, okay, so what is a flower? And you say, flower is a part of a plant. I say, what is a plant? And then you say, it's something that grows from the soil. It's something that is part of the plant kingdom. It's in the domain of botany. And I said, but I want to know what a rose is. And now we're talking about botany or something that is not an animal or we've sort of moved from uh, the idea of a rose because I just picked it up and you could see that my thumb was bleeding because I put my hand on a thorn and I said what the hell is this and then you said that's a rose and then we were down in a totally different area which is not helping me understand anything about the rose or the thorns and you, what was the other way? And I think uh, 
one other way is offered in literature. For example, Gertrude Stein, in her writing about the rose or her lines about the rose, she says, a rose is a rose is a rose, and so on. So you can go on saying it five more times, a rose is a rose, a rose is a rose is a rose is a rose, and so on. So you do get uh, texts which talk about the rose in that particular way. Or a rose by any other name would smell just as sweet. I hope I've got the words correct. And and then there's a rose and a thorn. You know, so it's it's really gorgeous, it's very beautiful, but be careful when you go near and then you have blood on your hands. So the experiential allows us to enter, in this particular case, literature. The experience allows us to stay away from, let's say, the scientific or the analytical. Um, so, is there a, a bifurcation? Are we at the fork in the road saying, if you take that road uh, that's on the left, you go into the left brain kind of space and it is all about analytical thinking and it's all about science and it's about sort of understanding experience in a particular kind of way or artifacts or objects in a particular kind of way or it is about talking about objects in a particular kind of way. So it, you enter into a particular kind of discourse. The one on the right, and so this on the left, I'll come back to it shortly, the one on the right is uh, you enter potentially into the world of the arts. So let's say we're not talking about design but let's, let's say, so what is music? And then you go, music is something that you hear in your ears. So then you say, what, is the e what are the ears? And so on. So you could go down that way. Or you say, it's, music is something that is uh, different from sound and, uh, or noise. And so suddenly you've got three things. And then you can start to describe music as something that's pleasurable, that um, obeys certain rules. And... It's something that is a social construct, it's a cultural construct, it's something that you're familiar with. I mean, there's a lot of music that's quite noisy, and then you'll say, people put that off. And so you might be playing something very harsh that somebody doesn't like, or you might be playing something in another language, and they'll say, what is that? Put it off. Well, I listen to music in a host of different languages. And yes, so, so there's, the, do you want to go and look at that stuff? So if you go into Spotify, and if you were to use, um, you go, just go and search my name, Symmetry, uh, you'll get my playlist in Spanish or Hebrew or, so on, or Mandarin or something like that. Um, quite a lot of you, I, I, I then stopped making those playlists because Spotify said, hey, I'll collaborate with you. And then it gives me, um, I don't know, playlist one, playlist two. And so you get daily sort of suggestions. So there's six or seven. And you can go in and say, mm, you think I'll listen to that? All right. And then it gives you some other music. Familiar and some little bit unfamiliar. So it's, it knows that if it is unfamiliar, then I won't listen to it. But if it's something familiar with something new in between, I go, hmm, that's interesting. So that was me meandering about noise. So uh, that which is unfamiliar. So is noise a social, is music a social construct? Does it not even exist? Is it something that we've made up? Now, that particular way of constructing the idea of music is, let's say, uses social science. So, for example, um, 
if music is a social construct, then would you consider food as a social construct? I like this food. I don't like that other food. I can't bear peanuts and coconuts. Somebody yesterday said, I can't bear peanuts and coconuts. And I, hmm, that's pretty hard, strong feelings. Um, so, I, I, I'm vegetarian. I can't eat animals. So, that's a social construct. To be able to feel viscerally and violently ill when you eat tomatoes. Is that a biological response or is it a cultural response? Now, it could be one or the other. It could be a bit of both. And it could be a completely social construct. If you don't know what you're eating and your eyes are closed, you, would you object in the same fashion? So, now food is a real thing, unlike design, which is... Uh, have you held design in your hand? Potentially not. You know it's there because it makes you feel differently. But have you ever apprehended it? But food is something you could go down the aisle and you can pick up a banana and it's food and it's real. And then you put it into your mouth. And you put a lot of things into your mouth. Now, if you are a foodie, then you endlessly talk about food. And you'll say, remember 10 years ago, you know, that place, that burger, that pickle. And you, you talk about food experiences. You, so, that is, is, is food a social construct? Well, the talking about food is a cultural practice, which means a significant part of food is socially constructed or the appreciation of food is socially constructed. You need to know that this is good tasting food. So for example, um, let's say my children can't bear bitter melon and I have an unreasonable fondness for bitter melon or for bitter things or for sour things and so this is, this is, I've grown up eating sour yogurt. So if yogurt is, you know, you buy it in the shop, it tends to be quite flat, it's not sour enough. Maybe Greek yogurt is a bit sour. So is food then something that you learn as a cultural artifact? Is, do you have an ecology of your own food? Now that particular, this particular way of talking about it, this particular way of interrogating who we are, you get from social science. So when you go into social science, you go, all right, I'm going to use psychology and do pop psychology about design. And you can then say that it is about pleasure. It is about something inside me that gives me pleasure when I encounter design. So you're talking about something, let's say, that happens in the thing called the mind and my mind, who I am, and my ecology of what I have put into my mind. So it's, it's my suitcase of thoughts, uh, a suitcase which has lots of thoughts inside my head. And then I sort of keep ricocheting between those thoughts. So I get a territory which is the psychology territory. But if I were to say, no, hang on a second, that's all right. Let's go and look at another place, which is 
what about communities of people not about individual psychology will do individuals I mean they might do group psychology but suppose you say in this particular village they eat um, mangoes and raw mangoes and they make everything you know so it's their staple and you go and you don't like the food very much so there is a collective and they have a shared understanding of what constitutes food or what constitutes good food so when you travel from one place to the other and you go and live in a rural school they give you food and they say this is our food and this is the kind of food we eat in our villages and I go mm. so everybody has a taste for that kind of food and the understanding of what is tasty what you like what gives you pleasure is is constrained by or defined by the context in which you eat the food that you eat or where you've grown up or where you've heard people appreciate particular kinds of food now this particular way of going further into taste and food and in that sense design if it's constructed as a community then you're using let's say some social science frameworks or anthropology or sociology type frameworks which is all about collectives or this group of people uh, teachers listen to avant-garde music so this is Pierre Bordeaux in his book Distinction he sort of went around looking at the kinds of music different communities listen to so this a working class community it is a community of people who are affluent community so postcodes different post so in cities human beings have postcodes and in different postcodes different kind of people live uh, it's defined by their economy or when they moved uh, into that particular place or so so postcodes uh, define culture to quite a large extent or to some extent postcodes also define um, your health outcomes I mean people look at postcodes going hmm that's a high incidence of this particular disease like cancer that's a cancer postcode In that postcode the prevalence is much less and so you go and say hmm why is that lots of fit people live in this area oh lots of parks and so so the way your body physically is is defined by postcodes but in the Bordeaux in the notion of taste he sort of said that if you ask the question who goes and listens to John Cage or a performance of avant-garde music and if you were to go and stand outside the door of a performance of an alternative music performance and then you see all these people coming out and then you interview all of them and you find that there is something in them um, they're not necessarily the the very wealthy who might be going off to where classical music or opera or something so so your economic status your postcode determines your tastes all right to gather back to where we are the question was what is design can be answered by the second question who is asking but then the third question is what 
context or what ecology do you want to be in when you answer that question? So suppose you say that I want to know everything that is there to know about design from the dawn of human civilization. Then you get into sort of human artifact creation, the beauty of human artifact creation, and the sense of design within it. So a lot of uh, books on design in a particular era did this. I think it was sort of, let's say, the utilitarian functionalist object, the common folk object, craft object, is really beautiful and we'll tell you why. And when they were doing that, and this was sort of connected to the period in which there were these foundation courses in the arts. So whether you were, it doesn't matter what discipline of design you were studying, you would go and you would do two years of foundation before you went into university or something like that. So you finish school, you go into this space and they tell you what is design and then tell you that or you hear lectures. When I went to design school, the volumes by Georgi Kepis. Georgi Kepis? Um, more about the appreciation of design. So, so essentially, we're in the domain of design appreciation. So how do you appreciate design? Like, how do you appreciate cinema? By breaking down cinema into all its technical components or all its aesthetic components. So there was this particular way of doing design, which is looking at all human artifacts through history and looking at the fact that they all have design and they're all, a lot, the selected objects are really, really beautiful. Another way that was done in these texts was to look at design in nature. Look at a leaf. You know? It has design. It's, it's really beautiful because it has all its components and look at its shape and its shape has a functional. So you could hypothetically go into those texts and you'd get a particular territory. Let's call that the appreciation of design as written through a aesthetic functional or techno-functional lens. So machines would also make their way into these design appreciation books. They would be filled with photographs and there'd be sort of narrative of why you appreciate something. And uh, does it mean that if you appreciate design, you ought to go to nature to look for inspiration? Yes, because uh, within that framework of education, you taught into a course called Nature and Form. Did I teach a course in Nature and Form? Yeah. Was I taught a course in Nature and Form? <laughs> sort of. Uh, so, it's, is that a very 1980s way to do design? Possibly. But as we sort of apprehend design today, I'm just pointing out that this exists and there are probably pockets on, of places on the planet where people still look to nature for inspiration and they have a particular way to construct meaning in design or the particular way to construct design appreciation. So it's a complex world and design is apprehended, practiced, talked about in lots of different kinds of ways. So. What I am doing up to this point is that I entered industrial design as a mechanical engineer. 
and you asked me, how does that feel? Um, I've often been asked this question, do you constantly analyze or overanalyze or break things into parts? I do. And, but over the years, I've sort of learned to keep that a secret. I'm fond of models, I'm fond of diagrams, everything has to be diagrammatically represented. And people go, why do you do that? I said, well, when you take something up, it automatically splits into two. <laughs> so, for example, and this was back to the 1940s and so on, and Bauhaus. So, there's a form and there's a function, it splits into two. Really? No, well, it is an instrument, it is a thought experiment, it is a methodological framework. You split it into two. Okay. If you can split it into two, then you can continue splitting it. So, can you split function further? Yeah, you can. So, how do you split function further? Well, you could say inside and outside, or you could say shell and functioning parts. You know? So, it, it endlessly splits. Uh, does everybody do that? I'm just assuming everyone does that. So, uh, coming from an engineering base, you cannot silence the analytical. And then, of course, I did design, which was all about, let's say, design appreciation. I want to appreciate design, so that when I appreciate design, when I design, it will be really good, then, because I now have a really good appreciation of design, say design. Do you need to appreciate sport or music and go through a program of appreciating sport and music before you sing or before you play? I mean, again, they split it. Yes and no. I think the no is the interesting thought experiment, which is that if you find somebody who sings really beautifully, but, um, and they, they just listen to music and it stays in their brain and they, they, the pitch perfect, or somebody who plays sport and can jump from one sport to the other, and are really, really agile and very, very good. So, the way of talking about design as design appreciation was my second period, let's say. That was my 80s. And then in the mid-90s, I drifted into social science, my PhD in social science. So you get all these different frameworks of constructing society, not in the analytical way necessarily, but in a way, and also not in ways that engineering would do it, but not in functionalistic way necessarily, which is what in social science would say. You are essentializing it too much. So as, a, as an engineer, you have to break thing ta things down till you arrive at the atom, you know. Break it, break it further, 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 and find the essence. And they'd say, no, don't go looking for the essence in social science. Would say, that is essentializing something, which means if you essentialize so much, you actually lose an understanding of what was the big picture. So you're walking somewhere and you've stopped and you've seen a crowd of people very angry and agitating. Um, if you take the analytical framework and you want to go and ask them a question saying, why are you agitating and who are all these people and why in this particular situation is this happening? But on the other side, as a social science, you say human beings get together they get, when they get angry and they agitate. And so the, the sort of 
autopsy of the notion of collective action is where you start you want to go towards okay that's uh, access to a particular kind of language or you know the notion of autopsy is very interesting because if you do an autopsy of a collective phenomena versus do an autopsy of the body you come up with completely different results one takes you a deep essential one takes you up into let's say larger frameworks and herein lies another sort of interesting uh, contribution so essentially if you're a designer and if you have a background in engineering you do bring engineering into design which means you are aware that you tend to be more functionalistic utilitarian or manufacturing oriented like i'm quite manufacturing oriented because not only am i i'm an engineer but i also worked inside let's say in this case hitachi which is a large manufacturing enterprise and you are you think the design is all about uh, the manufacturing policy or mass manufacturing policy and it's not necessarily so much about let's say the consumer economy now i'm sort of leading this conversation to the next podcast episode which is about consumption which is what happens between the shop and the people who go to buy and that particular interface is what you have it's the only interface that you have uh, that's sort of full blown when you come into design school but if you've been in design and if you functioned uh, in the routine of industrial design like working within a factory environment then you know that that ecology is very big up to the point of shipment and you're not that involved in what happens at the consumer interface that's the most sort of populist side to things so innovation inside a factory is your way of thinking about design innovation as transformative innovation or you know way different ways of doing things is your way of constructing design not what happens in cities and you know fulminating about people having 300 pairs of sneakers or trainers is not where you are you're essentially about the fact that can we use the pacific ocean plastics and put them into a recycling system so that you have effective plastics and you have new kinds of trainers which i don't know which allow you to jump higher functionally so it's a different discourse whether you if you're inside the producer ecosystem and it's a different ecosystem discourse if you're inside the consumer ecosystem and i tend not to go that much into the consumer ecosystem but hey we'll do a segue here because it's been a bit of a longish break december jan and i have read a ton of books so which then made me go into my amazon kindle ecosystem and in goodreads it says hey this is the start of the year would you like to set yourself a challenge for 2022 and i went mm, okay and maybe you can read 15 books so what i have read 15 books is too much so i think we are essentially talking about 70 so i've got i put 70 in there because you read a lot because 
it's your job, that's what you do. Anyway, one of the books that I stumbled into was Bringing Home the Birkin. And then the second book that I stumbled into was The Primates of Park Avenue. And I had jet lag, and I was reading Bringing Home the Birkin, and I said, this is probably the loveliest book I've read in a long time. So Birkin is a bag. It's a bag that's made by, that's sold by Ernie's, you know, made by, sold by Ernie's. And it's, as a, 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 in, in analytical terms, if you take all the components of the bag, and then you price them, and then in a manufacturing setup, you construct it, you sew it, you use the best tech and so on, you probably would be able to make the bag, you ought to know, let's speculate, let's say you'd be able to make the bag with its material costs and manufacturing at $200 a piece. Given shipping and everything, you should be able to sell it for let's say $500. Okay, we're talking about expensive materials, beautiful sort of processes, a bespoke bag. It is mass produced, of course it is mass produced. Um, and we're sort of going to the top end of the price and we're selling it. Uh, we're saying that the cost at which it can potentially be sold is similar to the cost of, let's say, a gorgeous um, crumpler bag. I have two crumpler bags, they come with a lifetime warranty for their zips and I know the crumpler people and I'm stuck with buying only crumpler for the rest of my life. Very so you you have the Ernie's. Um, I mean, it's arguable, but let's say that it could be sold for five hundred. But the Ernie's, you can't buy it. It's restricted. You go to an Ernie's shop and say, "I want a Birkin." They go, "Sorry, there are no Birkins." How do you buy a Birkin? And what does a Birkin cost? Okay, it might cost about. $10,000 Australian. Can you buy a Birkin for $100,000 Australian? Yes. So, the, the Birkin is a construct. It is an artifact and it's like the polar bear. You need to go to the place where the Birkin lives to understand what it is. You can't sit on the sidelines and go, oh, that's shit. That's terrible. That's uh, it doesn't make any sense. And so, to be able to say that the Birkin doesn't make any sense, you have to take the left path. And so there you'll find there's a bunch of people, like people who are agitating about masks, you know. You need to have a shared ecology which allows you to fulminate about the Birkin. Nothing to word fulminate. This is the second time. I'm back in the 90s in the podcast. This one comes from 1986, just when I graduated. That's going to be the garbage being collected. Um, Post-consumer economy <laughs> being seen. Um, so back to the Birkin. To be able to say what are the primary conditions that will enable you, what kind of discourse will enable you to say that Birkin is all bullshit, you know, it's terrible, it's, it's wrong, or something like that. You know? So you have an ethical and moral position about it. 
if you are curious, if you're channeling your David Attenborough and you're interested in this particular species, this particular animal called the Birkin, you're interested in the species and you know that there are many different types of Birkins. And then you go, ooh, I have the typology of Birkins. Alright. The second thing about Birkins is that there is a particular species that buys the Birkin. And then you go, whoa, now we're constructing the second part about who act, who is activated to go and procure a Birkin. It's like the moth. Who eats the moths and why uh, do you have you know particular species of birds proliferating because you know the, the pollution etc so you have two pieces of the puzzle you have the typology of the Birkins and then you have an understanding of uh, the human the species that are on whose habitat contains the Birkin or who privileges the Birkin and then they go and get the Birkin and the third thing you want to know <laughs> the first thing you want to know is what is the postcode and therein lies so you read that bringing home the Birkin and I don't know if I, it was the excitement of the book or whether it was genuine jet lag but it's 2am it's 3am it's 4am this is just so gorgeous it is somebody who navigates the territory so it is like the virus hunter going deep in and looking for viruses in the jungle so this is like a Birkin hunter who goes underground to do and tell you everything about it's like a Louis Thoreau going in there and showing you the world of the Birkin but only at the consumption junction which means only between the shop and the subsequent buyer so here is somebody who's going around and doing this totally amazing thing and at the end of it yeah I want to work into ah seriously I don't know I mean I'd look very odd walking around of the Birkin and then the second book I read immediately after this was the primates of Park Avenue and that is the postcode Park Avenue New York a place of Birkins but the Birkin arrives quite late inside the book because there's a whole lot of other things that are going on. But these two put together, so, all right. If you want to know more about design and then you ask the question, is the Birkin a case study to know more about design? Absolutely. Do not go and look at texts. This is not an official podcast. Please go and look at texts which tell you, oh, you need to do user-centered design or you need to do sustainability, you know. You can be sanctimonious. You can go around saying, oh, I'm going to save the world and everything. But when you're having your Whopper burger, when you're having one of those burgers where the bread is replaced with a meat patty and the middle is also a meat patty, when you are indulging in your excess at night and you're binging uh, to create an energy disaster in server farms by watching something endlessly six hours a day on online, when you're indulging 
you're not a sanctimonious person. You have no right to be moralistic. At that time, at 2 a.m., read these two books. Because they will give you something about the DNA of design. Why the planet needs design, or why it has design, and what forms design takes, and what is what happens at the interface of uh, the people who eventually possess and collect design and keep it. How many versions are you allowed to have? Probably the other question is, uh, if we were to see that there are people who who are on the top of the leaderboards of the number of Birkins that they have, then the person on the top of the leaderboard, how many Birkins do you think they have? This is a puzzle <laughs> to find out. And there could be a forum somewhere. And you essentially get this understanding of, let's say, the Primates Park Avenue is an ethnographic work. It's a social science text. It reads like a novel, but is a research text. Uh, the first one, bringing home the Birkin, is just just a roller coaster. It's just it's it, it's yeah, completely and totally enjoyable. So we ask the question: What is design? And we used uh, the answer, design is what designers do, to open out, let's say, a whole new territory. I arrived at the notion of design is what designers do purely as a very large suitcase into which I can pack in every different idiosyncratic aspect of design. Because, in 1986, I was very fond of playing Stockhausen on my loudspeaker in my apartment really loudly. You graduated from design school, you have your own little tiny pad, which is a single bedroom apartment, tiny little bedroom, tiny kitchen, tiny bathroom, a beautiful lovely terrace upstairs, tiny above a garage, and you go out and say, I'm going to play my own music, and nobody is going to complain. And I wandered into Stockholm, which is, let's say, outside the fringes of what would be considered music. Now, for those of you who are into atonal music or atonal jazz, or you listen to this kind of stuff, you know, clickety-clack sort of stuff, this, my suitcase had to become much larger, and uh, I dodged the bullet of what is designed by saying it is what designers do. So when you say what is life, uh, you're not taking the left path, you're not taking the right path, but there is a path in the middle. And this path that I've constructed essentially says what is life? Uh, life is what living beings do. And or life is what living things do, or experience, or uh, it's an attribute that living things have. And when they're not living things anymore, they don't have that particular attribute. So it is possible to construct these two 
completely summarizing this podcast episode. It is possible to construct these two particular answers. What is design? You respond as a Zen master by saying, who is asking? And that is guaranteed to give you a completely different playing field. Then you ask, what is design? And you respond, design is what designers do. And then you get a completely different domain. So I've shown you the Birkin. You read the book, you need you get to understand the consumption junction of the Birkin. You read the primates of Park Avenue and you get to see the internal workings of somebody who eventually acquires a Birkin. Oops, have I given someone away? The mystery. Similarly, if you then are a designer and you want to construct your understanding of design in a way that is, you know, brings forth your taste buds tingle when you think of design, or your, if you've got taste buds in your brain, they tingle when you think of design, you would only arrive there when you have eaten enough design, or you have collected enough design, and you have this huge repository, a wunderkammer of the most beautiful, utilitarian, sanctimonious design, yes, the left part. Um, the Hermes and all the other species that are like the Hermes, like the Ferraris and the Bugattis and so on and so forth, you've got them there, all right. But also everything else in between, the ones that are not aiming for success. So let one-offs, completely idiosyncratic. You have to have, you don't have to. You can have a very tiny suitcase into which very little fits, which means you go, that is not designed. Or you can have a very large suitcase into which all sorts of things fit, and it is a huge collection. Huge. Is your palate, that's not food, I only eat mushrooms. Or is your palate, hmm, I'm willing to try anything. So, it's up to you. It's your decision. And because you've been missing it, the outro music is going to be Scarborough Fan. Yeah, Matane. <laughs>